matter, black lives matter, black lives matter to me. Your life matters, my life matters, black lives matter to me. Freedom song, freedom song, I got to sing my freedom song. I love my people, oh, I love us so. I got my freedom and I won't let go because black lives matter, black lives matter, black lives matter to me. Your life matters, my life matters, black lives matter to me. Freedom song, freedom song, I got to sing my freedom song. I love my people, oh, I love us so. I got my freedom and I won't let go because black lives matter, black lives matter, black lives matter to me. Your life matters, my life matters, black lives matter to me. And welcome to the Ferguson Response Network Podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Mack, and I'm joined as always by my illustrious co-host, Ricky L. Hines II. How are you, Ricky? Uh, doing great. Cussing out white people and black men as usual. Yeah. It's my job, apparently. Or yeah. It's a large part of the job description. Somebody's got to do it. Somebody's got to do it. Uh, and we are lucky enough to be joined tonight by Larry Fellows III. What's going on, Larry? Uh, not much. Staying busy, uh, excited to to be on the show. So thanks for the invite. Thank you so much for being here. If this is your first time joining us, um, this is actually episode 22 of our podcast. It's a weekly podcast devoted to supporting citizens working to create lasting social change through sustained civil disobedience and civic action. And um, if you are unaware of who my co-host is, Ricky is a Los Angeles native, a U.S. Navy veteran, avid Googler, blogger, founder of the Americans United Again movement, and host of the Americans United Again podcast, as well as co-host with the lovely Sherelle of the AUA Hope podcast. You can find this show on iTunes or Stitcher. Just search Ferguson Response Network. And you can also go to our website, fergusonresponse.org. And if you're looking for actions in your area or would like to list an action you are planning, just go to fergusonresponse.tumblr.com. And you can also find the show on the Americans United Again uh, app, which you can find in the Google Play Store or on any Android device. So... All those places you can find us. And Larry is a community organizer from St. Louis. He's based in New York, working for Amnesty International USA as a young leader fellow. So he's a fellow fellow. Is that right? (laughs) I joked about that, getting the name tag to say that. (laughs) That'd be great. You got to frame that one. Yeah. That's awesome. Uh, so we usually go through a couple of news stories, and I had a few that came up today that I wanted to just talk about. One was uh, that the uh, FBI uh, said that Baltimore police departments claim that gangs formed a pact to take out officers was non-credible. Surprise, surprise. I know no figure, I right? wasn't really shocked <laughs> at all. Uh, federal officials found the Baltimore Police Department claim that gangs had formed a pact to take out officers in the wake of Freddie Gray's death to be non-credible, according to a new report by Vice News. Using documents acquired by the Department of Homeland Security, the article addresses the Baltimore Police Department's April 27th announcement they had evidence of a, quote, credible threat posed by members of the Black Gorilla family, Bloods and Crips joining together to take out law enforcement officers. Members of the Bloods and Crips told City Paper and other media outlets that while there was a truce, it wasn't made to target Baltimore officers. Rather, it was to stop the violence while protesting the death of Freddie Gray and police brutality. The documents that Vice News acquired show that the FBI in Baltimore didn't find the Supposed threat credible. Oh, Baltimore. You know, you know what, <laughs> the amount of like the amount of shit that you have to believe in order to even make this claim and be serious is is amazing. Like you have to believe that, that a bunch of gang members had the media presence and organization to decide to meet in secret, even though they know they're being surveilled, and then. Plot out a, a truce to to go after cops, and then show up on national TV hours later, and be like, "We have no idea what you're talking about." Who the fuck? White people do this. I was about to say who the fuck does this, but white people do this. This is all projection once again. 
Yeah, and for me, it was just particular. It's particularly egregious because it was so clear that this even was brought to the media by the police to discredit the or- local organizers and the local protests that were going on in the wake of Freddie's murder. And it it just it was just disgusting. And it also led to uh, the clash between um, the young students that were let out of school, and that entire situation was predicated on this threat that they said was out there so it was it was deliberate and made to undermine this community that already was suffering um in the wake of this tragedy so you know it's just disgusting to me um alair were you in baltimore i think you were there at some point right no i haven't i didn't i wasn't able to go um i know netta went um and we had a, a group of folks from amnesty that went as well um, to do some re- some observation and reporting, um, I did not have the opportunity to go. Um, I'm I'm still hoping that I can connect with organizers there. So maybe after my fellowship is done, I'll have like more freedom to actually go on my own accord. Mm. Um, but I I do think it's interesting that, and no matter what the city is, there's always these excuses of why they can use this this force against protesters and organizers in these cities, knowing that when you talk about violence, we're talking also about the violence that you use this force on so-called innocent people, because mm-hmm. they are. Yep. A lot of these cases, there's no there's no proof of weapons or drug use or whatever the list of things that people come out of their mouths with in these press releases to um, dehumify or villainize these victims of their irresponsibility um so i i thought it was interesting when the whole thing came out about you know gangs i'm just like that's really like you said it's kind of erroneous and it just came out of the blue when we i'm seeing all these photos and people are tweeting about how the gangs came together and supported and, and were out at the protest and and there was no animosity or no violence happening between them and it's just like also now the cops come up with this story mm. about that that they threatened and it's just like that's usually not how gangs work <laughs> no um, no i think we all knew that the story had some kind of there was no truth to it at all yeah, so i'm no. not really shocked by this headline now yeah it's not but it just shows the the mental you know like kind of the state of the department um and the mm-hmm. thing that i found interesting was you know that the documents they uncovered was that the and it was an email chain that was from an um department of homeland security employee who noted that it was quote curious that the alert came from bpd media relations section instead of bpd intelligence unit which is where we typically receive this kind of info the tensions have heightened here in baltimore over the last 72 hours so this alert cannot be considered without that context. So here's the Department of Homeland Security saying it didn't even come through an intelligence wing. It came directly from media. So the the goal was to make the public think a specific thing, to allow the police to do what they wanted to those who were going to be protesting there, rightfully so, um, and to infringe on people's rights. It's just, it's so gross. And um, I don't know what else to say about it, but, you know... It's it's good that this stuff comes out, but it's just disturbing. You know, I was in Baltimore. We went one day just to help um, Operation Helper Hush with one of the um, Baltimore lunch days that they were doing. And, you know, uh-huh. all the people I know that went there, they were doing amazing work, so much hands-on community work and so much driven by the community there. So to see it undermined by just blatant lies by the police after the reason we're protesting is because of your actions in the first place. Exactly. It's just egregious. Yeah. It's so frustrating to see. Um, and this is not obviously this, the only city that this happens in. You know, we see it all over the country where, you know, the the response to people exercising their rights is to make up some reason why they shouldn't be able to, whether we're talking about the mayor of Oakland or wherever we're talking about. It's a consistent thing that the community's uh, fighting against all the time. Um the second thing that I noted, and I know this is just, you know, kind of breaking news stuff that's just coming out is this arson um, at the uh, black church in North Carolina and Charlotte and another one in um in Georgia, uh, both have been deemed arson by investigators, though they don't have any suspects. Uh, uh, it was in Macon, Georgia. Uh, God's Power Christ of Church in Macon early Tuesday morning um, was set on fire, and um, in North Carolina it was late last night. So I don't know. I'm, I'm, I don't even actually know what to say about this. It's just you know, 
not that long ago, 1996, I think was the last time that uh, we had, um, as time called it, an epidemic, a national epidemic of violence against black churches. Um, wow. So it's not, it hasn't been that long since this has been a way for um, supremacy and supremacists to um, exact vengeance on black people. And to see it coming to pass again is... Um, it's sad and disturbing, especially after um, the massacre in um, in Charleston. And I'm hoping that they get to these investigations quickly and figure out what's going on and that this isn't the start of another um, trend. Um, I don't know. Yeah, but I think it, it underscores that the problem here is still domestic terrorism and racism and not sure. gun violence yeah like like there, there there's there's an opportune time to have the discussion about gun violence because if it used a bomb maybe four three or four people would have been killed versus nine but that's not the end of the discussion and that should never even be where the discussion starts definitely not yeah i'm, I'm we're not when I read this story I was just like oh man because it's, it's it's having that sense of like okay what's next mm. and like with, with a lot of the um, the cases or the arguments going on with the flag being removed um, I, I think it's going to be an interesting time to see how the people who believe that there's nothing offensive about the flag um, how they're going to react, how they're going to respond, how they're going to continuously, you know, display their flag in their homes or, you know, drive around with their pickup trucks like they already do. And it's not just in the South. This is in the North. It's, I've seen it yeah. in California it's where everywhere. I thought I would never see the Confederate flag. Um, but it is, uh, and I, I, I saw this argument on Twitter about how, you know, people in the North don't necessarily understand the argument about why it's offensive in the South. And I totally get that because I was not raised in the South. I, I've never seen the black race unless we talk about, you know, the KKK or white supremacy. But the fact that it is proudly raised at, you know, historical monuments in front of government buildings in the South, like you see it everywhere in the South. And I, I can't even imagine growing up as a kid, even as an adult, to see that, that, tes that testament of what we've had to endure mm. as Americans in this country for over... 300 years is, is despicable and to say that oh well this means something more than this and it's like now you're on top of that you're also policing people on how they should feel about uh, a symbol mm. when it's yeah. definitely more than that it's deeper than that like that that flag is ingrained in this country's history uh, ugly history but it's still it represents something very ugly about this country yeah, yeah, I saw and, I saw someone make a um a point about, you know, what what it meant and you know when we look at the especially in the context not a, on somebody's car or, or or um something like that but in the context of being, you know, outside of a state building of a state, you know, because what it, it's a signal to everybody okay. there that, you know, no matter what the laws say, we this is this is how it is here and we don't give a shit about what you think you have. When you're in South Carolina, this is what we believe in. And, it, you know, there, there's there's not much to say except for that that's what that's a symbol of. It's, it's you know, when it's in these municipal buildings and you see people um, fighting tooth and nail. I mean, the fact that it's even being debated in South Carolina is just yeah. disturbing to me. You know, what do yeah. you have? I, I don't understand the argument that could come from an, a, um, a cogent argument that could come from um any governmental figure at this point to, to say why mm -hmm. it needs to be there. It, it just doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. It, I mean, it really doesn't. It, it, it's, it's not like it's a fucking secret. Can we just be honest? The shit was about slavery. It was about racism. Like why? Yes. It, it, it's, it was about states rights to own slaves. It was about heritage brought on by the economics of black slavery. It was like, these are these we're talk, but we're talking about people whose ancestors were so held so dearly on to slavery that they went to war, they left the union entirely. Fuck trying to play by the rules. Like they weren't worried about states' rights when it was states' rights to refuse to obey theirs and in return, um, in return escape slaves. 
None of that shit. They, they didn't give a fuck. The argument is and has always been use black people for profit. Mm-hmm. And the only difference between that and the North is that at least in the North, you didn't have the title slave. You were still a wage slave, but you didn't have the title. And you had the opportunity to build black neighborhoods and and um, and build black wealth uh, until you know enough white people got upset and they decided to burn it down. But at least you had the opportunity. Absolutely. Um, we'll see. I, I do think that um, what Larry's talking about it's going to be very interesting moving forward. You know, I so much about um, you know this time in our country with regard to race relations and social justice and, um, you know, the idea that black lives matter, um, is unprecedented. And so I, I, I see all of these things coming up, you know, I say all the time, like, I don't, I don't bother having a true vision except for moving forward because I don't know, this is uncharted territory, I think for, um, black Americans in this country to, to, be having these open discussions about these complex issues that for so long in this country we're like, well, we don't talk about that. We don't bring those things up. We don't have those discussions in, in mixed company. And it's like, nah, fuck that. We're going to talk about it now because it's enough already. So I'm, I'm excited about that and the fact that people are having these conversations and that, you know, we're forcing people to get on record and say, yes, I, I agree with this flag or no, I think it should go or whatever it might be. Um, but I know that uh, those of us that do this work, we also know that it's not the same as winning. So it's it's a symbol and it's great. And I think these yeah. discussions are wonderful. But we obviously have a lot more work to do um, in all of these states and across the country. And Larry, you're so right about the Confederate flag. Uh, when I was doing March to Justice, I mean, we saw it in Pennsylvania. We saw it in Maryland. I mean, mm-hmm. it's not confined to the southern states by any stretch of the imagination, for sure. Uh, the last bit of news was that uh, SCOTUS went on a, a tear today. Lots of um, decisions. One I uh, was really happy to see, which is they uphold, upheld a key tool um, in uh, housing discrimination, which I was really surprised, like holding bated breath. Uh, Texas had brought a case to the Supreme Court that would try to gut the Fair Housing Act. And um, Justice Anthony Kennedy wrote the 5-4 opinion on a closely divided court, uh, per usual. He said, much progress remains to be made in our nation's continuing struggle against racial isolation. He said, noting that cities have become more diverse under the Fair Housing Act. He said, the court acknowledges the Fair Housing Act's continuing role in moving the nation toward a more integrated society. He was joined by Justices Ruth Bader Ginsburg, Elena Kagan, Sonia Sotomayor, and Stephen Breyer. And uh, Loretta Lynch also already issued a, a statement on the subject. She said, bolstered by this ruling, the Department of Justice will continue to vigorously enforce the Fair Housing Act with every tool at its disposal, including challenges based on unfair and unacceptable discriminatory effects. So I am happy to see that, I, you know, especially after the big loss last year with the Voting Rights Act, I was really, really frightened. Um, this court frightens me, generally speaking, and I don't know. <laughs> It's my biggest scary thing about the the next election is is that I know there's going to be some turnover on the Supreme Court and it it really frightens me. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, um, go ahead, yeah, Larry. Go ahead. I mean, I'm 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 anxious to see how it, it's, it's. I don't. I chuckle every time there's a new announcement with the presidential candidate because I like this can't be real. Like it has to be this huge joke. And that's what, like, politics is becoming to me is mm-hmm. a huge joke because people think, you know, oh, I'm going to run for president. And it's like, what are you hoping to accomplish to make a fool of yourself? Because with a lot of these candidates, that's all I'm seeing um, is, is them making fools. Like, they don't have an honest agenda, and they're not really looking out for anybody but themselves in a lot of these cases. I mean, I can't speak for every candidate, but it's just becoming a big joke to a lot of these people who are making announcement, including Christy next week is just like, Oh my, like really? Are you kidding? He's renouncing. Like, is he? Oh my gosh. Honestly, he, we, he's supposed to announce Tuesday, but we'll see. I just, <laughs> we've been, I, uh, I've chuckled. 
It's yeah. crazy. We've been referring to it as the GOP clown car because it's like one yeah. <laughs> joke after another. It's insane. I, right. I went through the numbers today and I think there was 27 of them or some ridiculous number of them that have declared themselves. And each one is more ridiculous than the next. This one, Michael Pitio, I'm just going to read this real quick. He says he has a business first fiscal conservative with a very optimistic view of the role played by corporations in generating wealth. He himself is a business owner who feels the United States has lost its way economically and that relaxed regulation on the private sector is the solution. So you it, mean the, the shit we've been doing for the last 45 years, it hasn't been working? They each read just like they're they're out there, like just looking for money from whoever will give it to them. And they're just going to end up on a book tour. Like to me, that's what it reads. Well, like like yeah. you don't honestly think that you're going to win anything, but you're just going to. I don't know. It's just so weird to me. And, and well, then conversely, I think on, on the um, Democratic side, I'm, I'm, you know, equally dismayed at the lack of candidates. So it, it's 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 like a twilight zone going on. Well, yes and no. But the, the thing is, is that on the Republican side of the ticket, they have they have essentially marketized the presidential election. It's right. become a market. It's become it's become a business. Mm -hmm. Guess what I'm gonna do? Nigga, I'm I'm rough president. We're gonna get we're gonna get it. Like what? What none of there and the thing is is that the more people who join the race creates less of an incentive to like or uh creates more of an incentive for people to to hop in is for even more people to hop in. And it's because you know, what do you stand to lose? You know, you're not going to be known as the 27th place guy. You're just going to be known as the guy who, uh, you know, a presidential nominee. And you can start an email list off of that. You can get a Fox News career off of that. Mm -hmm. It's easy as shit. Like, it's not even – it's just – it's a business for them. And we've, we've, we've allowed our politics to be, you know, committed into – converted into a commodity. The, the, the thing is, is the way this country is structured – the only tool that the people generally have are two things, violence and, and um, just large numbers pres or presence in large numbers, such as protests um, or the government. The government has always been a it, it's been a tool that can either divide or bring us together. It's been used to do both. If you want to look at redlining, <laughs> you know, you can blame white flight on redlining alone. They made it perfectly legal or perfectly logical for white people to just move out of Compton because there were too many black people in it now. This is what we do. And mm -hmm. it's it's a shame, but until we can admit that this is what we do and admit that this is wrong, we're not going to change it. Mm. Well, we'll see what happens. It'll be an interesting political season. Who knows what will come to pass? I am interested to see how the movement's able to shape the conversation and kind of force these candidates to um, answer questions they've never been posed before. Yes. And then Hillary went to Florida and said all lives matter. So I really don't know what yes. that, it's, it's like a bizarre, like weird. I don't know. I don't know. And a black church. Like she knew enough to go and knew enough that she needed to have these conversations, but didn't didn't go past that to, to think about the space she was going to be in and what an appropriate um, way to be in that space. I, I don't even know. It's like, who, who's advising you? Do you have any black exactly. people that work for you? Like I think exactly. in my head about this, you, I'm, I'm just saying if it was me and I'm going to a black church um, in Florissant, Missouri, I would certainly at least have the one black person read the speech. And I would hope that Boy, person would be shit not to say, and I wish, I hope that person would be enough to say, I, this line right here, Ma'am, uh, Madam Secretary, I think we should take that that line out just because it's not going to go over well. And that's all anyone's going to be talking about about your speech and they're not going to give a shit about the rest of it. Because that's really, to me as a politician, that's what you should care about is what is the okay. takeaway going to be from this? Although I've had it pointed out to me that perhaps that was her goal was to shore up some white voters through this, mm -hmm. through this act and let them know, hey, listen, I'm here talking to these folks, but I'm with you. I hear you all lives matter. I'm here. So I don't know. That's, well, excuse my language, but that's bold as fuck mm. to go into a black church and know, because Hillary is not oblivious. Nope. I know she's not. She's smarter than we think she is. Um, and she thinks we're dumber than she believes because it's, it's like, I know you've been watching 
follow these protests, and, and you have to have some type of idea what that means. And then to be bold enough to go into a black church and say, well, I don't agree with you guys about why you feel this way, but I want you to vote for me, is, is mad disrespectful in so many ways. And it's, I, I don't know, do, does she really think she's going to gain the black vote by doing so? I think um, from her she, perspective, who are they going to vote for? That's in her mind. I right. think that's what she thinks. Yeah, mm. I, I mean, and the fact remains: who who are we going to vote for? Like, I I. I don't but know. this is this is the thing: is that we don't we don't even involve ourselves involve ourselves in the most crucial point of a presidential election, the primary. Mm. Uh-huh. The primary, like, if she if she got primaried by someone who, more progressive or just to the left of her. It would send a message. Well, that it happened really last would. time. That did happen yeah. in the last election. She so. learned, I mean, you know, the motherfucker didn't come through the way we expected, and there, much of that isn't his fault. And yeah, there's, there's some people, who, there's some things he could have done and didn't do, but at least he got the seat. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, she didn't even get that far. She was, you know, and I, honestly, she is arguably on paper the most qualified presidential candidate in the past century yeah for sure there's i, I cannot find I, I cannot find another person who was possibly who was more qualified there than her um looking for their first term mm-hmm. but she's just not what we need mm. it, it really is it really does come down to that like qualifications are great but if you're not heading or looking into the direction that we need to go. We feel that uh, a particular segment feels the country needs to go. Fuck you. Mm. At the at the moment, I see the best shot at the, at um any anyone in the Democratic race would be Bernie Sanders. Get at the moment. He has some issues with gun rights, eh, being tied to Vermont, but outside of that, I mean, at least the things that he says are one consistent and do actually have beneficial effects for the black community. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, uh, just based on that, he's worth looking at and entertaining. She shouldn't just walk away with the black vote because she's a she's she wants to be the first woman president. Right. Yeah, I don't know. It's interesting. We'll see. We'll see. Well, that's all the news that I want to go over. So I guess we can move into into the uh, crux of what we were hoping to talk about today, which was a little bit about um, working in movement spaces and creating spaces within those those segments uh to build to heal and to focus on um the work that needs to be done and and having some accountability in within the spaces and how how we work to do that and how supremacy works against doing that and um you know, a little bit about that process. I've been seeing it a lot all over the country. People are talking about this thing and and I for me, it's it's been a, a sign of kind of the maturation of the movement because more people are involved. We have more organizations. We have more pieces of um, segments of the population that are getting involved. And so that tends to just get to a point where there's friction sometimes. And um, so I wanted to, Larry, I, I wanted to bring him in here because he has a lot of experience. And especially, you know, as he mentioned at the top of the show, working with Amnesty as a fellow for... Um, this has it been two years or one year? How long have you been? Uh, have you been there? Um, it'll be a little under a year. A so I haven't year. made it a year. Um, yeah. it was supposed to be six months, but it, it became like eight or nine. <laughs> um, and so you, I know you've been traveling a ton and kind of speaking with a lot of different organizations. So I wanted to um, have you here to have that discussion and just see a little bit of what hear from you, what what you're seeing, what you have been seeing, and do you see this as something that's been coming up? And how are people dealing with it? Kind of trying to create these these collaborative spaces while still allowing people to have their individuality within the movement. You know, that's actually like, I feel like that's been happening for like a week or two, like extensively Mm. um, on this conversation and not just online, but offline. Um, And it gets a little ugly at times too. Mm -hmm. Um, But I mean, even today I was talking to a couple people because I mentioned something about trans and I always, for me personally, I'm always trying to be conscious about how I address things, um, and it's really difficult, especially in when you're talking about um, issues like that, because you don't want to be offensive, but you're also coming into 
um, a space where you're, you're really wanting to learn and you don't know. Mm. And a lot of times I, what I see, and this is not, and this is talking about general, like all groups, is when you come into a space and you're asking a question and you don't know, and, and you usually go to people who are usually fighting those issues or usually talk about that subject very often and you're trying to learn, you're like, okay, so I'm saying this, is this offensive? How do I approach this? And it's really tricky because you can, a lot of things are already easily triggering for people. Right. Um, and when you're dealing with organizing and, and we talk about account, uh, accountability and intersectionality, you're having people of all backgrounds, um, all spaces, all genders, all, all races, a lot of times coming into spaces and wanting to work together to, um, you know, dismantle supremacy because it affects all of us. Mm-hmm. It affects not only Americans, but it affects us globally. Um, mm-hmm. and, and being able to come, walk into these spaces and just release all of these boundaries and limitations about how we see not only each other, but people um, around us. And, and when I feel like it's weird because in social justice, I feel like we can walk into these spaces and know like when we're coming from a very understanding place or wanting to learn. Mm. And sometimes that's going to be offensive, but also acknowledging that without being um, malicious or being intentional or, or trying to hurt somebody when a lot of the cases that not, that isn't, and it comes off as that. So it's, it's for me, I'm still trying to learn that, and I usually will ask questions in order not to offend people, but a lot of times it's going to happen without it being intentional. And I think it's it's trying to have a conversation about how we can do that without, you know, really wanting to hurt someone's feelings. Cause mm-hmm. some, there are some people that do that, but I think it's like in these spaces, if we have to learn or in how to grow and how to help each other and support each other to continue this movement, um, which there are so many, and how we can be um, linked to each other and how we can be open is coming into those spaces and maybe saying things that aren't going to be what we want to eat. Mm, absolutely. And I think that the a movement that is centered um, around being heard, like our movement is, is... Um, poses a unique challenge because if you're let's say you're in the climate change um, movement for example you know there isn't this um, personal attachment to the the basic tenets of what you're fighting for so you can have disagreements and they'll be about policy and they'll be about lots of things but when you have this added layer of well I'm fighting to be heard it makes you being heard in these spaces even more sensitive. And I think that a lot of times that the friction comes from that, that place of, Hey, I'm fighting to be heard. I shouldn't be made to feel X, Y, Z while I'm fighting to be heard. And Mm. it makes it, it makes it a little bit more sensitive of an area um, and harder to navigate, I think for people. And I also just think it's a lot of times, I don't know. I know for me, I've never been involved in a social justice movement before. So it's all new to um, most of us. And so it's not something that we are used to. It's not skills we've been taught since, you know, grade school and how to navigate spaces like this. So it's a lot of new um, territory for us. And, And every month brings a new challenge and a new thing we have to fight. I mean, who would have thought or even fathomed that we'd have nine people murdered in a, in a church, um, you know, even four weeks ago, you know, the week before we're all talking about Rachel Dolezal and here we are a a week and a half later dealing with such a horrible um, tragedy to our psyche as black Americans. So there's a lot that we kind of come into these spaces with and are, are sorting through and trying to fight the good fight at the same time, which I think sometimes leads to those things as well. Um, Yeah. Go ahead, Ricky. Well, I I think to some degree it comes down to pride too. Um, Hmm. Because the important thing about making a mistake isn't making it. It's not the mistake itself. It's what you do after. Hmm. Um, far too often people make mistakes in, in spaces where they, they hurt someone and they realize that they've hurt someone and they don't even have the the, the, the dignity or the, the respect for that person to even apologize. Like it's 
it's kind of you know at that point what do you say to a person who knows that they've hurt you but you know it's kind of like if someone walks walks past you and steps on your foot and then you tell them and they just keep walking mm. it's like well mm. we can't be on the same fucking team you know what mm. i mean and the other thing i think it really comes down to is what we do when we're heard mm. um you shouldn't expect yes men around you you shouldn't expect people who are simply going to agree with you for agreeing sake um, you should expect some people to challenge you, but have an intellectual basis for it, not just something out of or not even just an intellectual, but a, a realistic basis for it. You know, it, it, people all too often we dig. We don't dig deep enough. We don't look at the underlying causes of the underlying causes, which is really where the roots of white supremacy take hold. Mm. We don't look at how, you know, not trying to trying to focus a, a movement on you know black cis hetero men is detrimental because guess what when it comes to when it comes to black people as a general whole they're, they're on top of the fucking hill mm-hmm. despite despite being locked up more despite being um despite having fewer professional degrees than black women black men still make more than black women do mm-hmm. black men still make more than trans pe- than trans people do you lift you 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 have to lift those up at the bottom too. You cannot focus on who's a king, who's the king of the hill or who's perceived to be. And that you know, people need to be held accountable for that. Mm. Yeah, the, I, I I can't agree more. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, it's definitely a great point. And and when you said you know how we react when we're hurt, you know, there's that old adage of hurt people hurt people. And I think that a lot of that stems from, you know, I, I, I preach all the time about, you know, wanting um, more discussion about the psychological effects of supremacy on us as a people and as uh, and on us individually, not just black people, but people generally speaking uh, globally. We've seen we've seen uh, numerous issues uh, most recently, you know, with the Dominican Republic deportations um, that, you know, black skin, wherever you are in the globe means that you're going to be treated worse. And what does that do psychologically to us as a people? It's not good things. It's all bad things that happen to us psychologically and what we believe about ourselves, what we believe about others and how we go into the world and interact with the world. And so the more we can get to those, those, you know, um, base level things and start looking at how we think of ourselves and how that makes us think about others, the, the better equipped we are to deal with these moments of holding people accountable and holding ourselves accountable in the same space. Cause it's easy to get caught up in, you know, this, um, call out culture. Is that what they, is that? That's a good phrase, right? People say that call out. Yeah. Culture. Mm-hmm. So it's easy to get caught up in call out culture because it feels good. It feels like, aha, I've discovered something. Aha, I'm pointing something out. Aha, I'm educating somebody else. But it's a little bit harder to turn that lens around and, and turn the same view onto yourself. And so that's yeah. where a lot of this internal work that I think um, can be done. And I also think, you know, it's a lot of disparate desperateness you know where we're not always we're not in a room together often doing this work we're not we don't get to hang out and just do fun things all the time which is where those moments come where people let their guards down and it tends to be less fraught with emotion and you can get at someone's um, base level motivations a little bit easier so we're working in a Vacuum that doesn't necessarily stimulate those types of connections all the time. And that yeah. makes it difficult as well. So I'm always glad when people are able to get together um, as much as possible because it just works. You know, just seeing someone's eye movements, seeing how their body reacts to what you say to them, it makes a difference. You know, it's, it's, yeah. it's, it's a big part of our human interaction. So it, it's hard when we're trying to do such um, emotional work without those those cues and without those connections together. So, um, and then we have supremacy that loves to come into the mix and do its damnedest to pit us against each other um, as much as it possibly can. Which I know Ricky and I, you and I were talking about last week about it, and just how you know the gaze of the media, the gaze of uh, white America can be wielded in such a way that it it distorts um, 
the true nature of a person and kind of what they would like to present themselves as. It becomes something different when these things happen to them outside of themselves. And it's just crappy um, to see and to to have um, people have to go through. I mean, it's enough already. We're fighting. We're literally fighting for our lives right now and for our humanity. We're making this pitch that we are human and that we deserve more than we've ever been given. And even in that, there, there is a way for supremacy to undermine our message. And it's just, it's just sad. And I hope that we can yeah. work through those things because it's definitely going to help us um, push through to what I hope will be the next phase, which will be a lot more uh, focused activity. Um, I think our, the awareness campaign up till now has been excellent. I have to say, I don't think I've seen a message as clear as Black Lives Matter in my lifetime. And I'm a little older than you guys. I'll just say a little for now. Um, <laughs> and uh, so I, I feel like, you know, that's done. That's been done really, really well. I think we've really articulated what the what the point is and what we're doing out here and what we're not going to stand for anymore and how important it is. And I'm excited to see what the next steps are. And I'm excited that people are I felt like this winter was kind of a, a lay low time for people to kind of gather themselves and and um, and talk talk amongst themselves and their smaller groups. And I'm starting to see some amazing um, connections happening. I know Black Lives Matter had their very first national um, retreat last week, uh, last week or a week and a half ago in Detroit. There's like a hundred people there from all over the country. It's amazing to see stuff like that happening all over the place. So I, I'm hopeful. Um, that by the end of the summer, there'll be a lot more connections made and a lot more of this stuff hashed out and um, people getting together face to face and kind of leaving leaving a lot of that stuff behind. But I don't know, Larry, what you're, uh, you know, a lot more front facing than either Ricky or I are. So how does it look from your perspective in, in those in uh, those moments? Uh, it's always rough for me mm. because I, I hate being people that I, I love, respect, and admire mm. get thrown into that, mm-hmm. and I'm always in a difficult spot because I'm one of the people I feel like that's not the place to do it, but in a lot of times, uh, people feel, and I, I've talked about this not only on social media, but at work with even my mentor, because my mentor saw my tweets and he was like, don't, don't do it. Is like that. It's I, I understand how you feel and uh, and I get it, but it's it's just not the time. Don't don't. In a sense, he was like saying, "Don't stoop yourself down to that level," mm. because they're they're seeking it to get attention and to really bring you down to where they are. And like you said, it's, it's coming from a hurtful place. Mm-hmm. When people are hurt, when we're working in these type of environments where we're dealing with all of this trauma and and have no way of really dealing with it in a healthy way, it starts to fester, mm-hmm. and then we channel it in a very unproductive way. And I'm not saying that it's, it, it's that we shouldn't be you know, holding each other accountable or that we shouldn't be um, honest in how we are working in these spaces, and if, if we're doing it in a negative way or if we're harming people, we should definitely call that out. That's great. But I, sometimes um, I'm one of those people that feel like there's a, a really healthy way to do it. And I've said this. I've said this online. We all have each other's emails and phone numbers. Mm-hmm. We do. And and if someone wants to debate me on that, I'm definitely here for it because it's, it's not true. Because we are all involved in all these coalitions and groups and and group me's and what's up groups and, and like all of these different ways of organizing because we all talk through text or social media or email um there is a way for all of us to communicate how we feel and 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 schedule a meeting to talk and and really hash out like what our issues are um and all of us do a lot of traveling all of us and that's part of our work as well so i know it can be difficult but i know a lot of us make time to do that i've seen it i've been in those spaces myself where um I've had issues or someone's had issues with me and we've talked them out. And, and I mean, it may have been at that time, it didn't seem like it would be productive because it didn't seem like we were getting anywhere. But even now we are at a good place where we like, you know what, that was a growing pain. 
we were both wrong. Let's move on. Let's do this work. I, you know, I appreciate you. I love you. I respect you. And let's be adults about this and continue to do this because it was petty. Mm-hmm. Um, so it, it's owning up to that. And a lot of people have egos to where they just can't, okay, you know what? I was wrong. Or they take to a certain platform and attack people and then bring all these other people in it that don't even know the person personally enough mm. to really have an honest opinion about what the situation is. Like you can spew out all this, well, such and such did this. And then people read them like, oh man, that's effed up. That's wrong. Why would you do that? We respect you. And it's like, but you don't know. You're, you're hearing one side and there's three sides to a story. There's each party involved, and then there's the truth. Right. And the truth really has to come to light, and it usually does. And then what happens is, just like I'll bring in the situation where the cops um, lied about, you know, gang members threatening. Them. Right. That was their that was their truth, but it was not the whole truth. We didn't get the whole story until after the altercation and the situation happened, which blew up. Which is what happens in a lot of these situations with this call out on social media um, or even in public where somebody tells out their side and another person tells out their side. And then when the truth come out, it's just like, so all of that was unnecessary. Mm. So all of that was to gain some sort of negative attention and not really come to a conclusion or solution about like how we can fix what this issue is we have between each other. Yeah. I, I, I do think that we need to, we need to come up with, a concrete way, or I don't, I don't even know if there really is a concrete way to, to, to suss out people who are just there for their own personal fucking profit, mm-hmm. you know, like th- that are there because I have no problem with anybody profiting from this movement as mm-hmm. long as it's moral, you know what I mean? Like as mm-hmm. long as it is in the spirit of what we're doing, like that is the goal. I'd much rather you make money doing that than anything else, helping white supremacy. So I understand. At the same time, you know, a, a lot of people will see or like people will have these discussions over the course of months and months and months. And it gets to a head where, yeah, at some point there is a call out needed um, mm-hmm. and it has to be public because somebody showed that they asked in public. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you can only you, you can only talk to somebody, pull somebody to the side so many times before it becomes it needs to become more than just you yourself. It needs to become mm-hmm. there. There needs to be some public pressure to at least, at the very least, examine one's own self and do it mm-hmm. honestly. Mhm. I definitely agree. And I mean, I it's weird because I, you know, I've I've spoke with elders, you know, activists, organizers who've been in this for, you know, quite a long time, and they talk about you know these you know. Tension was there. Mm-hmm. Tension was there with all, with all of you can name all of the activists and organizers yep. we read about, we talk about, we you know admire, we we look up to. They've all done it. They've all talked trash about each other and been in meetings where they scream and yell and curse each other out. But they they've done that though. They've had that time and that space where they really like you know what? I don't really like you. I don't like the way you do your work. And I'm calling you out on it. And it, it becomes to a point where, okay, you know what? This is where I want to work. This is my lane. I'm going to stay here. We don't have to agree. We can support each other and, you know, send each other some type of resources. And I'll be present. I'll bring you people because that's what we do. But I still don't like you. And, and being adults to say, you know what? That's fine. But we're still in this together. And there there was progress, some progress made because, at the end of the day, I feel like there was some ego that was left. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm, I feel like there's not going to be a perfect way or outlet for us to do it. Like you, like you said, um, it, it, Ricky, that it really has to be looking at oneself first. And then really like, okay, how, how did I contribute to this? And then if you didn't, it's just like, you know what? Okay, maybe I need to have a support system to really back me up on this because this was foul or there was violence in this or I felt abused or attacked and I don't want to go in this alone. Um, I need somebody there with me if I'm going to approach this person. And that's okay to, to really own up to that and say, I can't do, I can't be in this by myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
Absolutely. And I do, I, I definitely agree that this is not anything new. Um, I think a lot of movements have, almost every movement, as you mentioned, has had, uh, you know, these tensions. And um, it's just a way, a matter of this movement and this generation uh, working through how they're going to deal with it and what is going to be okay for us and what is going to allow us to continue to do this work um, and create space to, to, to leave people the freedom to be in their lanes and not, and not have interference when they're moving forward through their stuff. And, you know, working through those, you know, psychological damages that, that come along with dealing with, it being black period in this country and then on a secondary on a secondary level being black in these spaces that we're continually you know reading all of these horrible things and dealing with these horrible things and talking about these horrible things on a regular basis you know i liken it to uh you know being in the matrix all the time i talk about that constantly how you know is it better to be asleep or is it better to be awake now? You know, and I, I've had this experience with so many of, of my sisters, my mother, even, you know, where, you know, a year ago, my mother would never even care about half the stuff I talk about. Now she calls me. Did you hear about this thing? And she's all angry and she's all upset and she's all riled <laughs> up. You know, she never would have even thought about being so in tune and so, you know, um, aware. And so having these things affect her so much more now as she's connecting these dots and understanding that this is much larger than these individual instances where before she could explain them away somehow. Um, and she's not able to do that anymore. So, you know, a lot of that, uh, comes into play as well. As you do more and more work, the more insidious, uh, you know, supremacy becomes and you start to see its ugly face and how twisted it makes everything in this world. And that can be really difficult to deal with as well. Ugh, it's so ugly. So, so, so ugly. So, Larry, t talk to me a little bit about if you've done any work. You know, you mentioned you had, you know, done some work um and one of the things you learned during your fellowship thus far has been, you know, being in spaces with people you may not personally care for, but you still have to go through this work. And what has worked in those situations and, and creating an environment where that's possible? Um, I think the thing that I've learned from not just people in the organization, but people outside, people who have been supportive and, you know, having really honest conversations about things. I think um, Erica Totten, when she came here for the um, annual conference, mm. she had told me something that really always sticks with me, like, in my head. And it's just it's like, when you're not feeling 100% about something, just own up to it and be like, you know what, I'm just not feeling it. I'm not going to do it. So, like, anytime I'm invited to do something and I really, if it's not in my spirit that I should not be present, then I won't. I won't do it. Mm. I won't force myself to do anything or be in a space where I feel it's not um, productive or conducive to the work that I want to do, because there's always somebody else that can be invited to that conference in my place right? or be invited to a meeting in my place. And I'll make space for them if I feel like I'm not the person to do that. So mm. I definitely share that with other people as well, but I think that's one thing I've learned. Um, and then being honest, if, you know, like you said, we, we, see all these headlines and we're reading this news constantly like it's, it's being fed to us every day and it becomes really exhausting so being honest about you know what i need a personal day i i can't like take all of this and being able to turn off and just really recharge and and, and really start over in a few hours or the next day um mm -hmm. because there's no sense in, in us draining ourselves every day when there's so many of us already in this work. Um, somebody can take over and, and handle a call for you or handle a meeting or send that email that you're really not 100% about sending because we cannot get to the point where we're so exhausted that we end up in the hospital or we demise because we've been working our literally our asses off to free each other when there's so many of, of us that can and really take wing or take the torch and help out. Um, so really asking for help, too, is another thing that I've learned. Um, mm. and, and not really feeling like I should have to do everything on my own, because I do. <laughs> um, because I also I, I feel somewhat, I think I'm getting out of this now, but I feel somewhat, like, incompatible, I guess, or a sense of, like, if I can't succeed or if I can't finish this task that 
I feel kind of less than mm. in what I do, which is horrible to feel that way. But I, I think a lot of us do um, because we're already given these expectations about like, oh, you're such a great organizer or you do this amazingly or you're good at this. And then you really have to live up to that all the time and you don't have to. Um, it, it just, it's not any reflection on your work if you decide, to, okay, you know what, I'm, I'm going to take a personal day today or I'm going to have such and such send you guys this email because I'm not 100% today. It's okay to do that. I mean, there are lists yeah. of other things that I've learned, but I think those are probably the three key things that have really, like, stuck with me the whole time I've been in New York. It really, like, pushed me to continue to do what I do. Mm. That's great. Well, I, I thanks for sharing that, and I'm um, uh, happy to see you doing all of that stuff. I, I worry about you guys all the time because I just feel like you're really burning the candle so brightly on both ends a lot. You know, um, as you're in, you know, your organizer hat in, in in a formal space, but I also know that you're connecting with people one on one. You know, they're reaching out to you um, and and sharing difficult things with you that are personal too. And so uh, I'm glad that you mentioned all of those things and, and, you know, the self-care is a huge piece because we have to do that. And I think that as black people, we've been taught not to, it's, it's a thing, uh-huh. you know, we can, we can handle it, you know, it's just, uh, you know, life is hard and we just have to push through. Meanwhile, white people, you know, go to the hospital for exhaustion, just as an example, uh-huh. you know, it's just, a, it's a different culture of what we're trying to say. And, you know, part of Black Lives Mattering is that we have to understand our, ourselves, we matter um, and we should uh-huh. matter to ourselves. So that's a big piece. Erica's always very helpful in bringing that back to focus for me as well um, all the time. Um, Ricky, how about you? What are your thoughts on that, kind of creating that space to come together and push through these difficult moments? Um, I think that there has to be an understanding that we we may have to leave some people out of the discussion. Mm. Honestly, like, you know, there, there are some things, again, and I, I said this I think last week sometime or maybe earlier this week, but black women and trans people make up uh, more than, I think about 55% of the the black population. How are you going to be anti-black woman, anti-trans and be for black lives? Like Mm -hmm. statistically from a numbers standpoint, that shit don't even make sense. So, you know, we have, we have to be able to say, look, this is the end goal. This is what this looks like. And when we talk about black lives matter, it is, it's roots are an intersection intersectionality. So if you are not in line with an intersectionality, you don't need to be at the big boys table making decisions. It's not, you know, you don't need to be at the table being able to create that space Mm. because that space, that that space that you're creating isn't one for black lives. It's one for people who look like you. Mm. And I think, yeah, that's really (laughs) real. And I also think that in that, in that, in that, thought process though and this is you know kind of the the revolutionary part of it is that even in saying that you know maybe you don't deserve to be in this space because you're not coming to it with the the vision that we all have we still fight for you we still want you to be Mm -hmm. free too you know there is still love in that in that in that gesture because it's not a subjugative um you know, decision or, or position to take. It's one out of love. It's like, yeah, you know, you can't be free until we're free. So that's why we have to cut you out of this. And so it's just a matter of prioritizing things. And to me, that's why I always come to it from, it's like, yes, you know, you can't come into this space with this homophobic, transphobic, anti-woman message, because if any of those parts of our population are subjugated, then you yourself will never be free um you know and and it it is just a fact of the matter it's just the way that it's just it just is what it is and so i i hope that that's that's where people are able to come at it from and and to see kind of the point of it um you know alicia i'll quote alicia garza which she says when black people in this country get free the benefits will be wide-reaching and transformative for society as a whole um and so to me I, i i if i put when black you know, trans 
women or men are free, then it will benefit and be wide reaching and transformative for society as a whole. And so mm-hmm. there's no way to, to suss out those two. There's no cl- declarative statement on black people. It's all of us collectively becoming free. Um, yeah. So that that's definitely it's at, at the heart of the movement. It's at the heart of the message. It's at the heart of everything that we do. So if you're not coming from there, eh, it's not really going to work out because you yeah. can't can't yeah. and I, can't do that. I, I think to be to you have to be you have to be willing to put yourself out of a job. Mm. Like mm. that is yep. the end goal. Yep. That is the end goal. Is so that I don't have to fucking fight anymore. Yep. It doesn't necessarily have to be me personally. It can be my children, my grandchildren, my great grandchildren, whoever. But the point is, is to get to a point where you don't have to fight as hard. Or you don't have to. You don't have to do this job. That's mm-hmm. the point of any war or any aggression is to no longer have to endure what sent you to war. Mm-hmm. And upholding misogyny, upholding transphobia, isn't like is so inherent to to white supremacy that why why are you even why are you even in this fight? Mm-hmm. You know, you're not you're fighting. To, to for riches and to continue fighting. Nobody wants to fight the fucking fight forever. No. It's just, I'm a fighter. I don't. I will say just about anything to anyone in any sort of way, and, and for the most part, I'll be fairly respectful. I don't want to do this shit for too long. Mm. If I don't, if if it's if there's a way to do that, if there's no way to do that, fuck it. I will fight to my death. But that, that you know, I would prefer not not to have to. And I don't think anything's wrong with being able to admit that because that allows us to 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 really push the 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 conversation forward. If you're waiting for 50, you know, for it to happen in 50 years and you're not going to push the conversation forward the way you should. There's there's something to be said for patience, but there's also something to be said for being aggressive while you're being patient. And being, you know, just not, not accepting of anything less while you're being patient. You know, that, that's where it comes from is having the patience to sit there and say, nope, this is what I'm here for. And this is what I stand for. I'll patiently wait for you to come around, but I'm not compromising in that moment. It's not happening that way. So that's a lot of what the spaces need to be, um, you know, kind of, I hope bringing that spirit to it. We'll patiently wait, but we're not compromising either. It's not. It's not going to be a question of good enough for us anymore. We've done good enough. We've done good enough for too long. It's enough with that. It's 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 time for all of us, or not, or we can't continue this way because it hasn't worked doing it any other way. It's clear that together is the way to do it. So, well, I think that brings us to the end of our show. I'll go around with some last thoughts. So, Larry, we'll start with you since you are our guest. Okay. Um, I definitely want to thank Ricky because uh, he was one of the – his podcast was one of the first that I ever done getting into organizing. So I, I, he's definitely been a person that's created space for organizers in, in this movement. So thank you for that. Um, and also thank you to you, Leslie, and your husband who have been supportive in not only the work but the conversations. Um, definitely tackling, tackling – I can't even speak uh, supremacy and, and, and what this movement really means in supporting organizers and activists um, and, and being um, great people in this work. Um, and also thank you to everybody that's been supportive because um, it, it's very difficult to do this alone, but when you have a system of people that are really like rooting for you and really being able to send encouraging words and be present and, and really open and listening to what you have to say is definitely appreciative um and i'm appreciative of it so thank you so those are my my last words oh thank you thank you yeah thank you i mean you you you've changed your life literally Mm. you changed the direction of your life to, to 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 embark upon this the least we could do is support you very true uh ricky final thoughts from you um, I hope this is. I hope everyone's felt this has been productive. I, I think th- we have to be able to define spaces in where where we are able to really come up with the concepts. Like you didn't see. Um, I always talk about this this particular moment in Selma where 
they're all in the room, and the, the Snick's there, uh, the, the SLC, SCLC is there, and they're all pitching ideas as to how everything works and how everything logistically helps and hurts the cause. And we don't – we have the talent. We don't – to say that we don't is insulting. The talent has always been there. It's been silenced, and it's been separated, and it's been segregated, but the talent has always been there. Um, we have – social media for the moment and the internet for the moment uh, that it remains relatively net neutral to be able to suss these things out and you know some things can, do have to be done in person it absolutely but before we can even come in person we have to we have to be able to decide what who the people meeting are and what they represent mm. and if they don't represent the fact that all black lives matter then they don't need to be in the room i don't care who it is Absolutely. That, that's great. Um, my final thought is just that, you know, I hope that people are able to, um, if they're able to take some time and get into personal connection with each other, because at the heart of this mo of this movement for me are the relationships that we build and the space that we, we create together, whether it's online space or one-on-one -on -one or however you choose to do that. So I would really encourage everyone to do their best to, um, in those moments where you feel hurt to take some time and make some personal connection, even if it's not with the person that hurt you with somebody else so that you're taking the moment to, um, feel emotion, um, but connect it in a positive way. So I hope that, that people are able to take that away. And, and, um, as, um, Larry mentioned earlier, do that self care, which is very, very important. Uh, again, uh, if you are looking to follow Larry, you can follow him on Twitter or Instagram at Geek N Stereo. That's the letter N. And you can find Ricky uh, occasionally on Twitter at AUADOTorg. Not that often, but occasionally. You can always find him on Facebook, facebook.com backslash AUA Movement, and also on the AUA Movement.org website. And you can find me at Leslie Mac MAC. And as always, if you have actions in your area or are looking, for actions in your area, go to fergusonresponse.tumblr.com. Thanks again for joining us, and we'll see you guys next week.